Welcome to Stories of Recovery, a MAR Recovery Resources production from MAR Addiction Treatment Centers. I'm Matt Shedd. At our treatment centers, we use community living as a therapeutic tool to teach recovery skills. So what this means is that our clients take what they learn in treatment during the day and they start to apply that in their community life together. So a lot of the life skills, emotional and spiritual development that happens for our clients actually happens in the residence. Chris S. is my guest today, and his story provides evidence of this. He shares from his experience of growing at Mar and talks about making healthy, recovery-focused choices and how those behaviors can be contagious and spread through a whole community and even carry on and influence people in a positive way after the person leaves treatment. Chris lives in Kentucky, and we did this interview remotely via an internet connection, so you might notice a difference in the sound quality. All right, here's Chris. Let's go back to, so when, when did you come to Mar? Oh, wow. So I came to Mar in 2000. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And I, oh, wow. and, uh, yeah, I'd been a firefighter. Um, and I basically decided I wanted to professionally do methamphetamines and drink bourbon. And so I did. <laughs> and uh, it didn't go well. <laughs> it went great for a while. <laughs> but, did that uh, turn you into an ex-firefighter or were you able to stay? Did. No, I, I let, they were going to let me stay. And I just, I left. I said that week that something was going to give my marriage or my career. And I ended up giving, you know, foregoing both. Mm-hmm. Basically everything, you know, went to jail. As a matter of fact, I was one of the few. So this was before, I guess you guys have drug court down there now. You have drug court. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this was before drug court was a thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the ironies were that my family had me arrested to save me or someone else uh, from me. And I was in bad shape. I wasn't living in my house anymore. I was living in the woods because I thought the DEA had bloodhounds after me. I had a chemist, you know, when you first get in Mar and they talk about how much, you know, they talk about all the different tolls that the disease takes. One of the things they said was all the financial repercussions. And they asked me how much, which I had financial repercussions, but they were from bad decisions, not from, I mean, if I spent any money, it was on bourbon. I didn't spend any money on dope because I had my own chemist. Mm-hmm. So he was making all the dope I could handle. I mean, I could, I had enough dope in my truck to kill a baseball team most of the time. Wow. So that wasn't, it wasn't a problem. And in fact, it was the opposite. It was a bad problem because I had too mm-hmm. much. I had so much. Uh, but um, so I ended up, you know, getting thrown in jail by my parents or getting, they issued the warrant. And then when I got out, I, it was, straight tomorrow. So I did six months in the county lockup. And then I came down there with, was with you guys for like six months. And then when I got home, of course I had to go before the judge again. And the way that the drug court is now, there wasn't anything like that back then. So they had me for a bunch of felonies. Uh, they had me pulled over leaving my grandparents, but I had a 
22 squirrel rifle in the back seat. Well, it was covered up by, not intentionally, just because I was living helter-skelter with sweatshirts and stuff. It wasn't mm-hmm. loaded. But because I had methamphetamine and a big old bud of marijuana, mm-hmm. methamphetamine took all that. So I was looking at like 35 or 40 years. Oh, my gosh. But they said, look, if you'll go down to this place and do this thing, stay there as long as they tell you, all this will go away. So I said, okay. So they had great leverage on me because uh-huh. I was extremely hard-headed and highly capable. And I had a lot of bad guys on my side that could produce a lot of money for bail and do a lot of things. And uh, they raised the bail. They kept the bail outrageously high the whole time. It was like over 100000 full cash the whole time. Or I'd have gotten out. I would have gotten out. And so then I went straight from county lockup to you guys. I stayed down there until you guys told me I was good to come home. Back uh, back then, Ewell Hardman was still with you guys. Yeah, tell me about that. So I had been, uh, I'd been living in the woods, and and hiding from everybody and freaking out. I actually rode my dirt bike to my grandmother's cabin in like my boxer shorts and I didn't even ride any trails because I was afraid that they were I I was really in bad shape and I was all bloody where they had the briars had scratched me all up when you have that moment of clarity one of the lowest points for me because I adore my grandmother she's still with us and you know she was like true southern lady Mm -hmm. so I was telling them that the DEA had bloodhounds after me and I'm they're like you know, so it was really scary. But anyway, I get down to Mar and I am sitting in a Wednesday night spiritual life group at one of the maybe Presbyterian church. Uh, I can't remember where, but and it was a strange gathering of people because you had all these kind of hard cases. And I was probably one of the few blue collar guys. So I'm sitting in with those and there's like a couple of little old lady church ladies and there's a couple of young little young church ladies. And I'm just like, this is the oddest group of people. And Yule's going on about something. And there's a guy beside me that seemed like he was kind of like me a little. And I said, I leaned over and I whispered to him. It kind of sounds like brainwashing to me. I'd only been there like four or five days. And Yule, did, did you ever meet Yule? I didn't. I've just heard about him a lot. Yeah. But so he was a, he was like a cool nerd would be uh-huh. the best way I'd describe him. And he had these, you know, he had glasses, which hell I have them now. And so he's going on with whatever he's going on about. And, and he goes, uh, what's that, Chris? And he clicked, he clicked those glass, you know, he clicked those glasses. I said nothing. And I was kind of embarrassed because I didn't realize that, you know, I was still sick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, no, if it's good enough to say to your, uh, you know, your buddy beside you there, it's good enough for the class, you know, for the group. And I thought, and I said, well, it just kind of sounds like brainwashing to me, this stuff, you know. And, and it really did. I mean, I'll be honest. And so he goes, well, hang on a minute. He clicks his, let me see. And he pulls his folder up, pulls my file. You were living in the woods and had a perfectly good home and you weren't living in and you thought the screech owls were calling your name. Um, sounds like your brain could use a little washing to me. <laughs> and it broke me down. And I, it, it was just in my face, but it was gentle. It was real. There was no denying it. I'm in a group of people that they're not judging me. 
I mean, you, you, I don't know how, but they're not. And so he broke me down that night, that moment, that instant. And I allowed the process to begin. And I felt I took comfort. And instead of being freaked out, and wanting to get home and wanting to run and wanting to figure out how to get under out from under these you know, looming charges I had over me and all this stuff, I actually like let go and mm. let, let the process work. And so then we went, you know, went from there and I ended up, uh, I was trying to get home in 90 days. I had some twisted little torqued up girlfriend here. That was a little partier that, you know, was the love of my life. I had to get home. Oh my God. You know, whatever. And she's out doing whatever the hell she was doing. So I thought I need to get home to her. Of course, we never, I never reconnected, whatever. So in 90 days, that was the program. I'm ready to go. So they let me buy my ticket and let me think I'm leaving. And like, I don't know if it was a week or a few days, they call me in the office and it was Doug and Yule and Dave and, you know, Rick. And they sent me down and they say, you've really made some progress. Great strides. But we have this thing that says that you have to do what we say as long as we say, or you go to the pen. And we think you could just use just a little bit more time here. <laughs> How did you feel when you heard that? I felt like I was back in the insane asylum and it was brainwashing again. <laughs> but I also had a level of trust with them because I'd done, you know, 90 days there and I'd, I'd watched myself and other people and I, I knew how I felt when I got there and I knew how I felt, you know, three months later. And so I just said, okay. And uh, I had to let go again. And they said later that it was kind of a mean thing to do, but number one, they had the full legal way to do it. And two, they wanted to create an environment where I really didn't get my way and see how I'd respond. And they were able to keep me in that, you know, in that safe environment and let me process through how not getting my way or going to look or how I was going to. And uh, so it's good. And then from that point forward, I began to take on more of a role of in my little community. They gave me an old, they had an old Lincoln continental they gave me to drive. I didn't have a vehicle down there. Hell that, bank and repo. I mean, I was in bad shape. So they gave me an old, like a 76 or 78 Lincoln Continental. That was huge. And they said, here's the only deal. The insurance is paid. You got to put gas in it and you got to take everybody anywhere that they require. So then the, toward the end also I had in my community, I figured out that one of the guys was drinking. So I want to stop here and give a little context honesty and integrity are obviously really integral parts of recovery. And when our clients enter into the community here at MAR, they agree that they're not going to harbor potentially damaging secrets. This could be anything like rule violations or relapses. Clients can sometimes have a hard time wrapping their mind around this and practicing this because people often mistakenly view this behavior as tattling or ratting out on our friends. But the truth is, in the context of recovery, being honest and holding one another accountable to the community standards can be the difference between life and death. 
Here, Chris shares about a situation where his community had to confront this reality. In my community, I figured out that one of the guys was drinking. Had He had a car. He was from the area of Roswell somewhere. And he had booze in his car. And I hated it. But I called. And Doug has told me since that you don't know how big it was. I felt so bad. I, I'm, I'm not sure they, you know, I threw that guy out. And I think I may have heard he even died. You know, I don't know. And you called, you called the staff? I called the staff and said, yeah. And so we had a big thing. And of course they kicked him out. And we had a lot of fallout meetings afterwards and all that. And and I really wrestled with what was the right thing to do. And Doug has told me since several times, you cannot believe, you know, I talked to you a little bit about the sins of the father, but the sins of the, even the sins of the apartment or the community, Mm. he says, when you get one infected, and there's one guy doing something wrong and the others figure it out and they decide as a group not to tell that toxicity lasts through several rotations. You cannot even have any of the guys that were involved in the original thing and they're still making bad decisions and they're still affected by that toxicity. Wow. And so he said, likewise, when you bite the bullet and you do that hard thing as a community, because I didn't just do it myself. We met, the community met, and we talked about it. And several of the other guys had become aware of it about the same time as me. What are we going to do? Well, I know what we're supposed to do, but, I mean, what are we going to do? And we ended up doing that. And Doug said, you can't believe that community that you're in is still one of the strongest and best and will make the right decisions regardless of what one of the other guys does. And he said, so I want you to know that – because I felt really bad. And I think Doug called me and told me that that they found out that guy – you know, later died from whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. something, something to do with the life. And that, that sucks. But if some of the others of us made it because of that, then that's one of the hard uh, realities of the thing. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. What a great, that's such a great illustration too, of the, what, what you shared that Doug told you about the community and how important that is to what happens at Mar and the transformation, not just at Mar, but just, in general, well, and then you can translate that to your family system too, buddy. Yeah. I mean, because at the time he called, I was dealing with heavy, heavy family system stuff and great big uh, realizations, uh, you know, and in in aftercare therapy and doing my own my own thing, and it plugged in so big, translating from that straight to my own. Oh yeah, family. I mean, yeah, it's when you talk about infected too. It's just like it you know, that disease spreading through the community. And yeah. That- and the guy, Doug would say the guys that are still in there now making bad decisions don't even know any of the guys that committed quote the original sin or whatever. Right. Wow. So it makes you understand how, I mean, I, it, it really drove it home that we did the right thing. That, wow. Yeah. And yeah. And it just goes along with these things are intergenerational, even in generations at Mar, this stuff gets passed down. Right. Um, even though there's no family, no bloodlines, but there's that, that community, that community, unspoken rules get communicated on, you know, we don't talk about this. We're going to do this. We're going to not be honest right. about that. All that stuff. And you think happen. about it when you come in there as a new guy, I mean, you're like a pup. If you ever, if you ever were one in your life and, mm-hmm. and, and, and here's the senior guy and the next guy. So you just adopt that stuff. And then as you come through, that's the status quo. And you got the ones behind you 
you know, you let them know, however, it was communicated to you that that's how it goes. Right. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's a great way to put it too. Yeah. When you come in, you're so vulnerable. You're like a sponge. You're just, yeah. I'll do whatever you tell me. A lot, yeah. of that, a lot of that stuff's probably even communicated non-verbally too. Just I agree. Like, no, yeah. I think I would say that more than half of it is probably non-verbal. Yeah. yeah wow. Just that, either by just silence or ignoring or you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. That's such a hard thing um, for people to kind of wrap their minds around in treatment uh, that you're not, that you're doing the right thing and you're helping everybody, even the person who's, who you're telling on, for lack of a better word, you're helping him too, because we've got this thing ingrained of like, oh, I'm, I don't want to be a rat or I don't want to, you know, like. Right. That's, That's what it was. That's yeah. what it was. And I ended up wanting to talk to that guy before he, they let him leave. And, uh, I told him this, this was you and we're not going to be a part of it. And I couldn't, you put me in this situation. I know right now you feel like we're doing this to you, but you put all of us in this situation Mm. by your action, knowing the rules, the rest of us are trying to mind the rules. Mm -hmm. We had one other guy in the community that had his girlfriend spend the damn night or it was his kid or something. It was a family weekend. And mm-hmm. late at night, he came in or whatever, and he was already off, buddy. And I didn't, I was up and gone. I didn't even know it, but he ended up getting, getting tossed because he had, I think he, I think it was his son. He put his son as, which, you know what? Poor thing, but mm-hmm. the rules are the rules. And I mean, it's all about rejoining society. You're going to have to conduct yourself with a certain amount of discipline. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, our free will went rampant toward the end of our abuse. And that's why we're, that's a big part of why we're in such a mess. Mm-hmm. Because we were just doing whatever we wanted without regard for ourselves or anyone else. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, that guy did that too. That wasn't, that was bad, but it wasn't near as big a deal to mm-hmm. me as the, the drinking guy. Cause it right. took us, a, it took us a couple of weeks to figure that out. And then it right. took, it may have taken a week of, of heavy, talking when that guy wasn't around or whatever to figure out. And then I went, actually went down to his car and uh, found the bottle. And that's when I was like, there it is. Mm-hmm. It smells wow. on his breath. There it is in his car. That's the end of it. We got to do it. So you mentioned Doug in that story. Do you have any other memories of Doug early on in your, and the impressions that he made any stories about him? Yeah, I mean he is a huge part of but but really him and Yule and Dave. Rick is the funny guy. He was the anecdote guy. He would kind of soften the bitter pills for you, you know, as you're coming down the hall. Uh but Doug was kind of like Yoda, you know. I mean he just see right through anybody. And he had that way of you know. And all the Dougisms, I love the shirts and the stuff on Instagram. My God, that's so funny. I mean, it is so funny. But one of the things he said to me uh, was that, and this was actually when I was leaving. Uh, So they had a big thing at the lake house. I want to mention here that when Chris refers to the lake house, he's referencing Camp Donnie Brown. And this is 
part of treatment at Mar. Um, it's a location we have up at Lake Alatuna where our clients regularly engage in recreational and outdoor activities together. They also hold 12-step meetings up there and have groups. Our alumni and current clients regularly use Camp Donnie Brown for picnics and cookouts as well. Um, so here Chris is talking about a time at one of those events, a picnic, that he attended right before completing his time here at Mar as a patient. And they asked me to speak like spur of the moment. They love doing that stuff. And it was a big crowd. I mean, there were a lot of people there. There were alumni there. There were, I mean, I don't know. And he put me up there on stage and asked me questions that I didn't, he, he didn't brief me at all. He just stuck me up. And so, uh, one of the things he said was he was happy. He had fun watching me squirm and, and talked about the charges and stuff. And then he said, one of the things we loved about Chris is that we were able to give him back the gift of himself. And so then he asked me, you know, what for new people here, cause there were some new people, what would you tell them? What would you leave them with? And I, of course you're thinking, Holy cow. And there's all these people. I just said, I think that my grandmother told me years ago and most of my life, be careful of the company you keep. And I didn't realize the true impact of that. And so as I'm getting ready to leave here, I have been in safe, wonderful company. I was scared of everybody and didn't trust everybody when I got here, but I now feel like it's a family and I'm going back home to my family and I'm scared of them and I'm scared. And so the thing I'm going to be most focused on is the company I keep because the decisions I made and the things that I did in the way of the drugs and alcohol and the stunts I pulled were mine, but they were truly exacerbated by the company I kept. If I hadn't run with that rough crowd, I probably wouldn't have done some of that stuff, just period. So uh, that was a big Doug moment. And then uh, years later, I have to stop and tell you, though, my first time at the lake house, I think I may have gotten there on like a Monday and the lake house is on Wednesday or Thursday. So I've been there like a couple of days. I'm totally on buddy. I get to walk the trail. So I grew up at my grandparents resort in the woods, big 500 acre wooded hills and so I missed nature greatly being in jail then going down to Marm. I felt really at home walking that trail because I smelled the smells and I was back in the kind of back in my element. I know what kind of trees and wildflowers and mm. so much. So we walked that trail, we came back and I'm kind of awkward and my buddy, you know, sick of buddying with me or whatever. So he does whatever. And I'm sitting in the thing in the house and I look up over the fireplace and I see a plaque that says, I wish you all the pain you can stand dot, 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 for it is through our pain that we grow. And I thought, Holy, where have I ended up? <laughs> and I was, I just thought, Oh my God. So let's fast forward six months later. Right before Doug walks me out on the on the porch or wherever it was to to ask me the questions in front of all the people, I'm sitting there and I'm just kind of 
I know I'm leaving in a day or two, maybe the next morning. And I'm kind of reviewing through my whole journey there because so much growth, so much change. I mean, it's incredible. And I happened to look up and notice that clock hanging there. And I just happened to glance up and catch it. And I sit there and look at it and I read it again. And it could not have meant something more different. And I understood. And instead of it freaking me out and thinking, oh, my God, where am I? I felt comfort. I felt peace and wisdom. And it was amazing how much different those two, that 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 little plaque meant to me. And then Doug said, would you come outside? So, so I, I wanted to tell you that because I looked up and saw that. And I'm sitting there by myself and I'm just like, oh, my God. And then six months later, I look up and I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. So that was really good. And then like, uh, I don't know, 12, 14 years later, I feel like, I, you know, I'm still clean and sober and doing my thing. I've been in a lot of therapy, a lot of self-discovery. I'm really struggling with my family and, uh, So I called Doug and I'm telling him about it. And he says, welcome to the core of all addiction. I've been waiting for this phone call, buddy. Drugs and alcohol are the veneer. They're just the symptom like the cough is of a cold. Codependency is the root of the whole thing. And so it frustrated me all over again because I thought here I am 14, 15 years sober. And it's as if all I've done is abstain from the drugs and alcohol. I don't know that I've grown a bit. And I was so frustrated because I love to achieve what I set out to. And so he had, a, there were a couple of like weekend uh, seminars on codependency and uh, maybe something at family dynamics or something, which I did a couple of those projects before I left uh, more when I was down there. So I drove back down there, an avid mountain biker. So I took a long weekend and loved on myself. And I stopped and rode a couple of trails at state parks on the way down and then got myself that hotel, ate at that waffle house, did the whole thing, went to the to the men's center and took the classes and uh, um, rode three or four. You all have some great mountain biking down there. And I rode three or four of those trails down there. But I had a great uh, time with the, I mean, it's frustrating the codependency part. I mean, I'm still feel like I'm just starting to figure it out and I've been almost 20 years, man, you know? So, uh, but that was big. And I, I, he's has such a great way of saying something, getting you humble, still showing you, giving you hope. Yeah. I mean, this is a this is a big thing. This is a new thing. This is gonna be a scary thing, but it's gonna be okay. And you can do it. You've done all this other. And so I was fussing at him. I mean, not at him, just fussing, saying, Doug, I've done so much and I've grown so much. And I thought I was so far along. And to realize all this crap, I mean, I'm like, I'm not anywhere. I feel like I'm like a dry drunk. And he laughed and he said, No, man, no. Many people go their whole life and never realize what you're realizing. So it doesn't matter how old you are, you're getting it. And that's the important thing. And he's right. Mm -hmm. And so as I get it, those around me, like Jake, like my wife, 
you know, it rubs off. It, it goes back to that story you told about the community and, and, um, you know, when the guy was breaking the rules, it's like that in the same way that recovery, you know, help right. with dynamics and boundaries that spreads out too. Um, yes, both. So I was a terrible influence on young people when I was using and young and I, uh, glamorized the life and the drugs and the, because I was a very, uh, so I was a good guy doing bad things. You know, I was a, I was a city son. I saved a bunch of people. I was a firefighter. I, you know, I did a lot of good, good stuff in the community and was well-respected, but at night I was hanging gangs and doing big dope deals. And, you know, my wife didn't know it. Uh, you know, so I was living a true double life if ever there were one. And then to live, to do the right thing now makes such a, you know, it's so fun. I'm, I'm probably more leave it to beaver than I've ever been, uh, you know, so to speak. And it's kind of funny because most guys that recover deep down, they want to do the right thing. They want to be that good guy. And then you start examining when you get into the codependency and the family dynamics. I was a good kid when I was 10 or 11. And then by 14, I was a, I was a terrible kid and it wasn't just being 14. So what happened? Mm-hmm. And I had to examine all that and it was hard. And the tug to share it with your family as you discover all these things is big. Though it was knowledge for me that I had to digest and like sit with and it'd be enough just for me. Mm-hmm. In other words, I wasn't going to get the validation. I get validation from Doug 15 years, 20 years, you know, but, but it's for me. That's meat for me. That's nourishment for me. Right. It really doesn't, doesn't feed anybody else. You know what I'm saying? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just got married a year and a half ago and it's been one of the scariest, most humbling things of my life. And Doug is so happy because one of the things they told me that I, Doug said, you will struggle with intimacy, real intimacy, not sex, not, but re, true intimacy your whole life. And I hate it. You know, I, I don't like that, but I'm telling you, and it's a fact, it's the truth. Mm-hmm. And it's because of my family dynamics, but I'm undoing so much of that. And this woman is tough enough to stay and sweet enough to stay mm-hmm. or that I let her stay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so that, but that's been huge. And then she has two stepsons and, you know, blended families. It's an extreme challenge. And they're not my kids. I can't snatch them up and bust their ass. And they're teenagers. You know, they're not going to, if I were to do that, they would probably never speak to me again. And then that would, you know, there's so many balls in the air. Uh, But all this has prepared me for that so well. And that was another thing Doug told me. You're a victim of your family. You are your family's Jesus Christ. You got sacrificed all the time. And you understood your part part, whether you consciously realize it or not, but we were not going to give you that in the beginning. Cause they told me the whole way through, you're not a, you're not a victim here. You're not a victim. And he said at the very end, when I'm sitting in there to get released, I don't know how they do it now but, or how they did it with everybody else. But I said, you're a victim of your family's toxic enmeshment. And I said, but, and they stopped me and said, we didn't want you to have a victim mentality. You're in control of your own life. The victim never does gets anything done because they're waiting for someone else to do it by, by the very nature of the definition. So you, you are a victim 
of your family's dynamics and your fourth generation of big family business. And all you guys could almost be piled in a pile. I mean, almost all of you. But you're not a victim. I appreciate you uh, reaching out. And, and I love Mar. And the only thing I haven't done that I would love to do, and I hope to sometime get enough time to make the commitment, uh, Doug said they let uh, alumni come back down and, and go back through the process and leave your phone, your credit cards, and, and get real again. And I would love to do that oh, at yeah. some point. Absolutely. I, I haven't found the spot, but it's on my mind, and it will happen at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they got, yeah, I think they call that renewal week and you can just yeah. go down and yeah, yeah. And get in the mix with those guys. You don't have to pay anything for it, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So, man. It's so good. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. This has been great. All right. Nice to, nice to visit with you. Likewise, Chris. All right. Take care. Take care. All right. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us as always. I'm Matt Shedd. Our executive producer is David Tate. The show is co-produced by Angela Edmonds, and we'll see you next time.